the mind of a scientist is a fascinating thing. So how does a scientist think in this ever-changing world? You'll want to hear from Alicia Zhou from this Imagine Talks Encore presentation. Alicia Zhou is Chief Science Officer at Color. Zhou has gained recognition for spearheading COVID-19 testing and vaccinations, as well as genomics, to help scientists gain a better understanding of public health. Zhou has led research into COVID-19 variants to highlight to public health agencies the need for key genetic information. She's also responsible for managing a team that initiates, executes, and publishes peer-reviewed manuscripts and posters by colors scientists and engineers. In addition, Dr. Zhou is an active part of Color's market development team for population genomics and population research. So here's Alicia Zhou at Imagine Talks. Welcome back to Imagine Talks 2021. I am here with Lisha Zhao. She is the science officer of Color, uh, one of the premier COVID testing facilities. Um, Lisha, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you get to do what you're doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Welcome. So my name is Alicia Jo. I am the chief science officer at Color, and my background is I'm an academic scientist by training. So um, I grew up really loving biology, really thinking that I wanted to explore more of the science of sort of how life happens. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I really wanted to pursue research, and mm -hmm. my sort of passion was really in molecular bi biology. But then, how do you take this very sort of esoteric space and mm -hmm. make it available and useful for? human medicine, patient outcomes, making people's lives better. Um, and so I decided to get my PhD in cancer research and I spent actually about 15 years of my life doing breast cancer research. Yeah. Um, and I was very, very sure that I was gonna become an active professor. Both of my parents are academics. I grew up on university campuses. Hmm. I was so sure I was gonna become a professor. Um, and then kind of almost serendipitously, I decided to actually leave academia when I was finishing my postdoc at UCSF. Um, and it was at the same time as I had my son, who's now five and a half. Um, and I realized that being a woman in science and being a postdoc, um, taking maternity leave, I all of a sudden realized that the work that I was doing didn't feel as important as I had wanted it to be. Hmm. I knew I was going to go away for maternity leave for three months and I had to put my research on pause, mm. but it felt a little bit like does anybody else care other than me <laughs> that I'm going to stop for the next three months? Right. Um, and I and I realized all of a sudden that in my pursuit of trying to become an academic, I had lost the ability to have as much impact as I wanted to. Um, and that's really when I decided to um, think about, could I be making a bigger impact by being somewhere else? Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I joined Color in, in oh. 2015. And at the time, Color was a really small company. It was uh, I was number 30 when I joined the company. Wow. Um, and honestly, I didn't know it was that small when I joined or else I probably wouldn't have joined because I'm not usually the type of person that likes to take a lot of chances. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, it's the best decision I've ever made career wise. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I've been on this journey now for the last five and a half years, watched this company grow from that 30 person company to now we're 350 people wow. uh, and we do. Are now, we're now providing the majority of the COVID testing for the uh, city of San Francisco, and we're doing about 15,000 COVID tests a day. So we've done a lot. <laughs> That's amazing. And I'm going to backtrack a little bit here. 
Um, so UCSF is where you got your postdoc, right? Yeah. And you were also known for giving a, a very special a subject talk on, on a TED Talks one time, right? Mm -hmm. And prior to UCSF, where did you go to school? Yeah, so I, I did my undergraduate training at MIT and I got my um, my bachelor's in biology. And that's actually um, where I spent a lot of my time doing cancer research. I spent the four years of undergrad also working in a breast cancer research lab. And that's when I knew I really wanted to do my PhD in that. So then I went and got my PhD in biological and biomedical sciences from Harvard, which is just down the street. Wow. <laughs> um, and then I spent the next six years of my life doing my PhD. Uh, and I spent that time really split between the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and the Broad Institute in Cambridge, which is this big sort of uh, bioinformatics institute that is really doing large genomics research. Mm -hmm. And so then once I finished my PhD, I went and got my postdoc from UCSF. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really was thinking about how I was building sort of this career path towards professorship. Um, and, and then after I finished my postdoc, uh, that was really when I suddenly kind of decided maybe I was going to try something else. Um, and so that's when I pivoted and joined Cutler. Got it. So Harvard, MIT, UCSF, <laughs> TED Talks, science, chief science officer. Yeah, see, this is the, uh, the standard that I think all kids are going to be compared to at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so, fantastic. Okay. So you also, in some of our earlier discussions, you, you define yourself or you identify yourself as something like Generation 1.5. Yeah. As opposed to second or first generation right. Asian American. What does that mean exactly? Yeah, it's interesting. I came to the US um, when I was four and a half, almost five years old. And I was born originally in China. I was born in Beijing. Hmm. Um, and my parents, they came to the U.S. actually before me. So um, I was born in China, mm -hmm. and then my parents, um, actually my, my father got a Fulbright scholarship, and he came to the U.S. to study, and my mother came with him. Mm -hmm. And so I actually was in China with my grandparents and other family members for the early years of my life. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, what what sort of made them pull the trigger to bring me to the U.S., actually, they were planning to have me stay in, in China until I was at least in elementary school, so I could learn more of the language and the writing and the speaking. Um, but then what happened was in 1989, in June, Tiananmen Square happened. Mm. And I was in Beijing um, when that happened. Um, yeah. And my parents realized that they were not sure about what the future of Chinese-American relations was going to be, and right. they needed to get me out of China at that time. So. Mm -hmm. That's when they decided, actually, that they wanted to have me come to the U.S. in 1989. And so um, after Tiananmen Square happened in June, I came to the U.S. in September. Um, and that's when I first sort of came and, and started living here in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and I grew up sort of all over the place. And at the time, my parents actually weren't even living together. My father was getting his Ph.D. at hmm. the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. My mother was working in Pennsylvania, so they weren't even in the same state. And that's really why they weren't really prepared to have me come yet to the U.S. Um, uh. But because of circumstances, they decided to, to have me come. So when I first came to the U.S., I lived in this really small town in Pennsylvania for mm -hmm. about three years. And then eventually my parents uh, and I all moved back together and, and we lived in Minnesota for five years. And that's really where I think a lot of my childhood, I feel like, is very defined. Hmm. Um, and then after I was uh, high school age, we moved to Chicago, mm -hmm. where I lived for four years. And then I went to college in Boston. Um, but what that ends up being then is for me, most of my life in my childhood is actually defined by living in no place for longer than five years. It was in China for four and a half, Pennsylvania wow. for three. Uh, Minnesota for five and then Chicago for four. And so I just never really knew what it was to sort of put my roots down anywhere. I yeah. kind of moved around a lot, even within the United States. But the one thing that was very constant, even though I was moving around a lot, 
was this sort of Chinese identity. My parents were very proudly Chinese uh, and they were Chinese citizens. I was a Chinese citizen. I didn't become an American citizen until I was 17. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I spent most of my childhood uh, really feeling like we are immigrants, we live in this country, but we are not citizens of this country. Um, And so I think that means then I really sort of see this divide and try to bridge the divide between sort of the Chinese culture and the traditional sort of mentality that I was brought up with and sort of all the new sort of American Western culture that I was learning in school and through my friends. Um, And actually, I really struggled um, when I was going to college, when I was sort of in my early 20s with Mm -hmm. the idea that people thought I was American. Hmm. Um, I went back to China in uh, when I was in high school. Uh, and I have a really large extended family in China. My grandmother was one of nine children. So she, I have a lot of cousins, second cousins, aunts and wow. uncles. Um, I don't know, I, I can't remember all of them. And when I go there, they're always asking me like, who am I, who am I? And I'm always like, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I realized very starkly when I went back that they all saw me as American. Yeah. But that when I was here in the United States, especially growing up in the Midwest, I was, everybody saw me as Chinese. Sure. Um, and so then I felt a little bit like I didn't belong in either category. I didn't, in in the U.S., I wanted people to recognize that I wasn't like Chinese, Chinese, that I was growing up Chinese American. But then when I was, when I was in China, I was very aware, like, I am, I'm not Chinese, Chinese. I'm clearly different. I clearly have this American culture in me. Um, Even sort of the comfort with which I could speak Chinese wasn't the same, right? I I Mm. felt much more comfortable communicating in English than in Chinese. Um, And so I just realized that I was in this middle space where I wasn't um, fully Chinese. I wasn't fully American. I was this generation 1.5 where hmm. I do think of yeah. myself as Chinese American, but I really think of sort of having really one foot in each side of, of that bridge. That's interesting. Yeah, it truly is a um, almost a bridging experience that you yeah. have. Okay. Now, I think this gives you a huge advantage because uh, we've talked a lot about this in some of our other talks where having that cultural background, that foundation, mm-hmm. lets you actually expand into two of the biggest markets in, in yeah. our earth, right? Both Asia and the Western Hemisphere in North America. And so you yourself has done business in yeah. both parts, right? Yeah. So what has that been like, especially as a science uh, mm-hmm. scientist, uh, academic, um, going back and forth, using your culture, your, your mm-hmm. strength mm-hmm. As, as, as a 1.5 generation? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that um, there's a couple of things. Being in the United States, uh, being young and female and a scientist, you have to be very good at, at establishing who you are and your credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, when you walk into a room, you want people to respect the credibility that you bring. And sometimes I've been in meetings, this has happened to me before, where I'm sitting across from somebody at a, at a business meeting uh, and I've had someone be surprised. They'll say like, oh, I had no idea that you had this background because you look so young, or I had no idea that um, you've been to Harvard and MIT and you have a PhD and a postdoc and all these other things. Mm. Um, and so I'm aware that that I don't necessarily make that first impression when I walk into a room because, sure. because I am young, because I'm female, because I'm Asian. Um, and so I often sort of think about how do I make the best impression within the first you know, two minutes when I walk into mm. a room so that when you meet me, when I speak to you, you immediately feel the credibility. Um, and so that's something that I feel like I've learned from growing up here in the United States. And I think one of the things about being American is you are 
you get taught how to be unabashedly sort of proud,、mm -hmm. and you know how to fill a room. You know how to be confident. Right.、Um, and it's on the Asian side of of the culture, we generally feel it's better to be more of a wallflower. It's better、mm -hmm. not to be the loudest person in the room. It's better to sort of Um, sort of lead with、uh, with your actions and not your words. Right.、Um, and and、the、certainly,、humbleness. exactly. So、yeah. you certainly don't want to boast. You、yeah. never want to be the person who's like, oh, look at me, look at all the things that I've done.、Um, and so,、um, so one of the things that I've sort of struggled with, and then also sort of try to find a balance with, is how do you represent both of those things?、Mm -hmm. um, and I think at the end of the day, it comes down to、um, when I talk about my experiences or when I. I'm talking to a person across the table in a business conversation where I need to establish my credibility.、Sure. It's not about talking about my credentials or where I've been or my training.、Mm -hmm. It's about being very、uh, knowledgeable about the subject matter that we're discussing at hand and being very clear. And sort of,、uh, you need to be、um, confident in the words that you say.、Right. Um, and so, those are the sort of things that I think are really important and can give you that sort of aura of I know what I'm doing. I am somebody to be taken seriously, without feeling like you are being very boastful and and having to like come in with your resume every time you walk in through the door.、Um, and I think to me that's the way that I have tried to sort of bridge that.、Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting is、um, here in the U.S., of course, it, especially in business conversations,、um, there isn't this sense of hierarchy per se. You walk into a room, you sit down at a table, everybody's on the same level,、um, and you are sort of Jostling for position when you're in a negotiation. Right.、Um, in Asia, there is hierarchy. There、yeah. is sort of decorum.、Um, you need to really think about when you walk into a room. Who are you greeting? How are you greeting them?、Um, when we go into business meetings in Singapore, one of the things that people always remind, or I remind people on the team, you always hand your business card with both hands, and、right. you always receive with both hands. These are all things that like are not that normal here in the United States, but are really important in Asia. And so I think being able to recognize and understand the importance of hierarchy and customs and decorum, especially when you're at、uh, when you're negotiating in Asia, is something that I think Americans need to also learn and understand and respect in order to be able to successfully sort of enter that market. I love that. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Excellent. And then that leads me to another question I have: since you are obviously working very much in science and technology. What has that been like in 2020? Yeah, because scientists have been in the spotlight、yeah. more than ever in the history, I, I think ever. Yeah, in, in media, right, and、yeah. and and in politics even. Yeah, what's it like being a scientist, academic, and also in the private sector? Yeah, in it's really interesting. I think、um, I think 2020 has come with a bunch of opportunities and challenges for、mm -hmm. being a scientist.、Um, you know, I think one of the best things that's happened in 2020 is what they call the Fauci effect,、mm. which is yeah, that yeah, there yeah. are more trainees and young people who are now wanting to become medical professionals、yep. or scientists because they look up to Dr. Fauci. Right, right. He has really become sort of a superhero in 2020, <laughs>、um, and、uh, and and he he is really led with his knowledge and his experience、mm -hmm. and his credibility. Um, so on the one hand, I think being a scientist in 2020 is really great because people really also respect the work that we've been doing、mm -hmm. uh, in a different way because they understand how we're directly contributing to the current crisis.、Mm -hmm. um, on the flip side, I think science in general, you know, when we think about how you do science, it's really we follow the scientific method,、yeah. meaning that you're really looking for observations in the real world, you're making hypotheses, you're testing that hypothesis, and if the data refutes your hypothesis. 
you change your hypothesis. Right. And that is the way that you do the scientific method. Um, but what happens is when the real world is watching us do science in real time, they're seeing us sort of come up with ideas and then disagreeing with ourselves and evolving and changing those ideas over time. Yeah. And that's difficult because I think what the general public is looking to scientists for is sort of a clear sort of and concise recommendation. Mm -hmm. What should I be doing? Do I need to be wearing masks or not? Should I be getting testing or not? What is the sort of likelihood that I'm going to have a poor outcome if I get COVID-19 or not? They really mm -hmm. want some very concrete figures. Mm -hmm. But as a scientific community, we are discovering these things at the same time that we're making recommendations about them. And so right. that means that they're not as precise. Um, and so I think what that means is for us as a scientific community and a field, we have to recognize the responsibility that we have. Mm -hmm. The public is definitely looking to the scientific community for clear guidelines. Mm -hmm. And we as scientists have an opportunity to also communicate to the public what it is to, to do science in real time. Right. Um, and I think often um, what people are thinking is happening is that we're waffling, that we're saying on one day, oh, this is true. And then on the next day, oh, just kidding, this other thing is true. Right. Um, and that's really not how science works. I really think of science as sort of like a balance scale. Mm -hmm. And each time you get more evidence, it's a one more pebble on one side of that scale. And so you're just balancing, you're watching as the evidence changes and drifts. And eventually when you have enough data on one side, you can say with certainty, this is true. But along the way, you're, ga you're gathering these little pebbles and it's causing your scale to move. And sometimes it causes your scale to move the other direction. There's nuance in that. And I think a lot of times, especially with the way that the news media conveys facts and science, mm, they right. often convey it as totally black and white. Yeah. And I really would like the scientific community, but also the general public to more understand that sort of balance scale of how evidence works. Yeah, I can understand that, especially with um, I think I don't think people are used to things like science, all, all the STEM fields, I think their perception is it's a very clean, logistical, yeah. um, factual driven. Yeah. I don't think they are used to the mess yes. that it takes to get there in the first right. place. Right. right. And and you're actually watching science happening at, at a crazy accelerated pace right now. Right. And so um, not only is it messy, it's always messy, but also we're trying to go as fast as we can, which only makes right. it more chaotic. Right. Um, and with, and, with novel data too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And also with this specific sort of crisis with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes right. COVID-19, it is a very rapidly spreading thing. It has, it mutates, it changes. And so the way that the scientific community engages about it changes as well because this virus itself is changing. Um, and so that's something also that we have to communicate in a way that doesn't sort of incite fear, but hopefully incites sort of confidence and feeling of, okay, this used to be this thing that was unknown. And now with the scientific community's help, I feel I understand it better and feel less afraid of it. Mm -hmm. That should be our goal. It should not be using facts and evidence to make people more scared yeah. of this thing. We should be, we should be allaying fears. Any last words of uh, wisdom you want to give to the community as one of our leading scientific academics uh, as we go into the post, I don't want to call it post-COVID, we're going to be basically coexisting with COVID from this point yeah. on. Any words of wisdom you want to give us? That is one of the main points that I wish people would be able to take away, which is that um, this is not a thing that's going to magically go away. Mm -hmm. I know we all celebrated the end of 2020. Yep. Um, and um, I as well, I'm glad that 2020 is over. It is going to go up from here, mm -hmm. um, but it's not going to be sort of a black and white, like state change back yeah. to where we were. Um, this is something we will continue to have to live with and deal with. And so it's going to be a slow and steady climb. Mm -hmm. um, and that means then that in the meantime, 
meantime, we do have to still stay vigilant. We need to still think about um, what our responsibility is to public health. Mm -hmm. um, how can we be part of public health and help the general community? Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also means that we can't be just waiting for the flip to switch and everything to go back to normal, yeah. but instead prepare ourselves to the idea that the, the world will go back to more or less where we were before, but there will be some changes that will be everlasting. Um, and we have to be pre prepared for that. Fantastic. Thank you again. Uh, that's really all the time we have here for, but I've learned so much uh, about heritage, culture, uh, women empowerment, and the scientific community, and where we're heading probably from this point onward. So thank you again for joining us. Uh, I hope we can have you at a more public event <laughs> in 2022. Yeah, of but course. Thank you for all your work, and we look forward to all the breakthroughs that your company and you lead us through as we get through this really, really challenging time together. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode with Alicia Zhou from Color. To learn more about Imagine Talks, go to www.imaginetalks.org. Edge Interns and Mental Power Hacks supports this podcast. Edge Interns sources the best interns to the best companies. Learn more at edge, that's edgeinterns.com. And Mental Power Hacks is where you'll get life hacks to boost your mental performance, productivity, and success. Connect with us at mentalpowerhacks.com. Subscribe to us and get the latest episodes of the Imagine Talks podcast, Achieving Success, Social Impact, and Overcoming Obstacles.